Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. We turn our attention to a slightly different topic this week, climate change. We have covered our thoughts on the rapidly shifting dynamics of energy generation and usage in the past. However, this week we are seeking to find out more about the current understanding on the rate of change in respect to global warming and importantly, its global economic impacts. As the debate on the true impact of climate change raises, rages, sorry, and the tide slowly globally turns uh, both to its realities and its effects, the real war now appears to be between evidence-based views and projections from the scientific community and reasoning by mainstream economists that the economic impacts, whilst apparent, are not as bad as they seem. The argument is that economists have made their own predictions of damages using three spurious methods. Firstly, assuming that about 90% of GDP will be unaffected by climate change because it happens indoors. Secondly, that using the relationship between GDP uh, and temperature today is a stand-in for the impact of global warming over time. And thirdly, using surveys that diluted extreme warnings from scientists with overly optimistic expectations from economists. To discuss how all this comes together, or perhaps all falls apart, we have invited mm. along Professor Steve Keane, live from Thailand, who has recently written a probing piece on exactly the topic. Through his work in popular books such as Debunking Economics and Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis, and his weekly podcast through his Patreon page, Professor Steve strives to educate the world on the failings of neoclassical economics and highlight the risks of the insatiable drive for more debt in modern society. Professor Steve Keane, welcome back to Nucleus Investment Insights. Good to be joining you guys. Great to have you on. Here, and of course, here to run through our thoughts on how global warming may impact the global demand and discuss how they may be incorporated in our portfolios. I'm joined by Nucleus Wealth's Head of Investments, Damien Klassen. Hello to you, Damien. Hi, Tim. And also on the line, we have our Head of Operations, Shelley George. G'day to you, Shelley. Hi, Tim. Hello. And uh, just a quick reminder that before we get started to subscribe on YouTube and click on the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. And just now feel free to click on uh, click like sorry on the video to help our show grow. And for those listening in live, feel free to drop in your questions in the chat box in the YouTube's comments box to, of course, have them answered along the way. So let's jump into it. So we've got our agenda for today. So we're going to be kicking off, of course, with a highlight of Professor Keane's recent article that he put out and uh, just covering, I guess, the background and the reason for, for today's discussion. Uh, we'll be then moving into some reflections and discussion on the, on the topic. And we've got plenty of internal questions and I'm looking forward to some external questions uh, from, the, from the chat box as well, of course. Uh, we'll then be rolling through into our uh, energy price update, and we've obviously done uh, a, a serious amount of work on uh, on energy over the last few years on, on the show, so we'll be covering off on some of that. And then, of course, rolling into investment implications as we do and how these themes can impact the portfolios at, at Nucleus Wealth and the MB Fund going forward. Uh, so with no further ado, I might kick over to Professor Steve, if you wouldn't mind, uh, perhaps just a little bit of background just for, for listeners that haven't heard of climate change, perhaps, all, all three of them in the world. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, I've you know we, we, obviously climate change has been something which uh, people have been aware that humanity can cause simply by increasing its pressure on the um, on the environment, and we we tend to focus upon carbon dioxide alone. But the reality is we are a, a, the the peak predator of the planet, and we are using there are no resources which any other species on the planet can stop us attempting to use. And in that situation, we've ended up 
using uh, quite, uh, quite potentially far more of the planet's resources than is sustainable for the future of the planet. Uh, if anybody wants to deny that, uh, go back to kindergarten, frankly. <laughs> uh, and uh, and rather than doing rather than doing um, uh, woodwork, try to learn some thermodynamics because uh, even even if there was no climate change, I mean by that matter, I mean there's no uh, uh, human activity which increased the amount of energy we retain from the sun, which is what global warming is about. Even without that, and even with no no other pollution other than energy. At the rate we're uh, increasing energy usage on the planet, there's a wonderful physicist blog called Finite Physicist Meets Exponential Economist, where he points out that by the second law of thermodynamics, which is the fact that the, you, you cannot convert all energy into work. So some of what you convert will be waste. And the, the basic measure of that is that you have to, to do work, you have to um, turn a turbine, let's say, in a heat engine, to turn the turbine, you have to have a heat difference between one side of the turbine and the other. You get that heat difference by dumping the heat on one side into the environment. If you don't do that, the turbine, the entire turbine is roughly the same temperature and the blade doesn't turn. So that's, that's the simplest illustration of dumping waste energy. If we keep on doing that at the current rate of growth of the economy, which is of the order of 2% per annum, then this physicist calculated that according to the second law of thermodynamics, in about, um, I think about 500 years, the temperature of the planet would be hot enough to boil water. Mm. Now, that is, I think anybody, even Richard Toll, who must be the thickest human on the planet, he's one of the economists I've been reading, even Richard Toll would have a hard time denying that. So even if you leave out climate change, we are affecting the base. We cannot but affect the base level of the temperature just because of the fundamental laws of physics. And what we're doing with global warming, and this has been known since the 1850s, is that carbon dioxide is one of many what are called greenhouse gases. And all that means is they act like a greenhouse and that the greenhouse lets light in, but slows the transmission of light and heat back out, making the greenhouse warmer than the outside environment. Uh, and the, the atmosphere achieves the same thing through carbon dioxide, through water vapour, et cetera, et cetera. But carbon dioxide is the trigger, it tends to be the trigger element. Uh, if the carbon dioxide levels fall, you don't get as much water vapour, blah, blah, blah. A lot of long-lived effects like that coming out and variations in carbon dioxide are the main regulators of the average temperature of the planet. Uh, we started with the carbon dioxide level and started industrial civilization at about 280 parts per million which gave us the climate we were accustomed to for the last, uh, all but the last, say, 50 years. But over the last 50 years, our contribution in terms of burning fossil fuels has driven up the carbon dioxide level, which has then triggered all the other greenhouse effects. Uh, and, that, and that is the main thing we're focusing on. It's by far from being the only factor where we're changing the planet's biosphere, broader than its climate, um, but it's the most most dramatic one because it changes the amount of energy retained from the sun. And that means that the temperature of the planet rises and as the planet temperature rises, then we change the overall circulation of the planet. Now, none of this, none of this awareness whatsoever creeps into the work of William Nordhaus and the other economists around him who've, developed, who've built uh, the conventional economics of climate change. And... Um, I was simply horrified when I finally sat down to read their literature about two years ago uh, with the insanely stupid assumptions they have made to 
uh, reach the conclusion by assumption that climate change doesn't matter. And that's all that they simply assumed it won't matter. So that's all, just trust. Basically they're saying trust us, we're economists. And I trust economists like I trust the mafia. <laughs> Very good. No, I, um, and I guess just, just on that, actually, just to sort of um, bring it into, I guess, a, a more recent frame, you know, we've had this um, really, um, you know, it's interesting patch, I guess, is probably um, undershooting it a little bit in in, um, in what's happened in the world vis-a-vis carbon usage uh, with the, the various lockdowns, and we're probably feeling it um, a fair bit more than most uh, sitting in Melbourne today. Uh, but does this give, you know, a, an interesting set or data series on, uh, I guess, you know, either revealing perhaps um, the, the human impact and, and obviously, you know, if the, the, the globe just pauses essentially and obviously talk, talking in very basic terms here, um, pauses its, its, its carbon emissions or slows them down dramatically, um, does that sort of then further, I guess, the, the, the evidence? Um, your thoughts there? Oh, well, I mean, I, I think we've gone well past the point where um, that's even worth discussing right? because... We, we have, um, I mean, the, the, the key point about climate is climate is not weather. Um, and if you, if you see Donald Trump, you know, in the middle of um, a hot, a cold day in Washington saying, wish we could do some of that climate change, ha, ha, ha. Uh, that level of stupidity, I can accept, I can accept for an American president, particularly an orange one. Uh, <laughs> but I find this is what the economists themselves think. So uh, the most recent instance of that was a tweet from Richard Toll about two or three days ago uh, in response to a Twitter war we had last year uh, where he commented that the uh, climate scientists, uh, climate change will will make less of a temperature difference uh, than than the average diurnal temperature variation. In other words, temperature ranges from, say, you know, like in in, in Melbourne, I imagine, during... uh, during uh, summer from, you know, 10 degrees to 35, 40 degrees. Well, that's the 35, 40, 30 degree range in temperature. Uh, climate change is only going to be too. Why should we worry about it? That's the sort of thing I expect an idiot uh, 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 climate change denier to say. That is actually a guy who wrote the 2014 uh, IPCC report on climate change, the economic impact of climate change. He was the second the second uh, co-lead author, uh, the second editor, but by far dominated the, the panel. And this idiocy... And Steve, just before you go that, on there, yeah, yeah, sorry to yeah, interrupt yeah. you. Um, Please that, interrupt, uh, I'll get on the train of eyes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. That IPCC... Um, that's imp- uh, maybe if you can just clarify my understanding on this is that it's really important mm. because it actually informs a lot of what um, governments around the world are doing and thinking about climate change and policy. Yeah, and that's the why IPCC... These, is, yeah. These, these, that's why these work from these economists, which we have, seri- you have serious concerns over its validity, is mm. so important mm. because people are referring to it to make policy. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, the IPC stands for the Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's the United States nation's form body, and it pulls together scientists, meteorologists, uh, uh, physicists, chemists, engineers, and economists, and says, you work on your specific area uh, of climate change. So the, the meteorologists give us reports about the sort of cyclones we can expect in the future. Climatologists talk about the dangers of, of uh, overturning uh, things like the um, um, the, um, the Gulf Stream and so on by changing the, the density of, uh, of water through too much water, fresh water melting, et cetera, et cetera. But the economists, taken with William Nordhaus, 
they're the only ones the politicians actually probably read when they because the, the the reports are huge. I mean, the IPC there are three working groups, and one of those working groups alone, the report is about five hundred pages. There's no way any politician reads even five pages. That's uh, so the they to, They're not reading yeah. the assumptions; they're reading the conclusions. Exactly, and so the conclusions by the economists are that climate change by 2100 will change will reduce global GDP by between 0.2% and 2% of what it would have been in the total absence of climate change. So they're saying it's no big deal. And that's what the, if a staffer reads it and goes back and tells the politician, nothing to worry about, just go out and mouth some platitudes on, in front of the cameras to make the Greenies think you're on their side and get their vote for the next election and on we go. And that's what it comes down to. But how do they reach that conclusion? And this is, again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been in shock reading this stuff because it's so shitty bad. It is, it is the sort of stuff I would fail an undergraduate student for submitting as an essay. And this gets the Nobel Prize. In 1991, Nordhaus wrote a paper called, I think, the, um, to, to Slow or Not to Slow. Uh, and in that, he said he's going to measure the impact of climate change. And he started saying that um, some industries are clearly affected by the climate, agriculture being his nomination. Others take place in carefully controlled environments and are not really subject to climate change. And, well, okay. I mean, he used the example of, uh, of, 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 uh, cardio, of, of um, uh, cardiovascular surgery. So, yes, I imagine even if we had, if we had operating theatres when the world is burning, we'd still make sure they were fairly safe. Uh, but he then said 87% of industry is safe. Now, the only common denominator that 87 industry had was that it's underground because he included mining or under a roof. So what you got to be is you're not affected by the weather, you're not affected by climate change. And the same nonsense is repeated in the 2014 IPCC report. If any of those want to check it up, it's uh, frequently asked question 10.3 in working group two. Uh, and they say other industries are not really affected by climate change because they're not exposed to the weather. Now, that is a juvenile understanding of what climate is. It's mistaking the micro for the macro. So they think of, you know, changing the temperature of Melbourne by two degrees. That would be really nice. Yeah. <laughs> but if that two degree increase means you get it 10 degrees at the poles mm-hmm. and the, the ice caps melt and the circulation systems of the planet change, so rather than having three main circulatory systems in each hemisphere, we go down to one, then Melbourne will be a desert and so will the whole of Australia and we'll all die. And the only way we can survive is by moving to Antarctica and hoping that topsoil forms fast enough for us to be able to grow grow food and feed ourselves. Uh, it's a complete, this is typical neoclassical economics, completely mistaking the macro picture for a scaled up version of the micro. And that's what they've done. So with that, they simply say it's trivial, don't need to worry about it. And the main intellectual movement, slowing down our reaction to climate change is economics. Mm. Okay. Yeah. No. Look, I, I I tend to agree with you on on that explanation. Absolutely. Um. Just a thought of, of mine, Steve. Before we, I mean, you've got a couple of terrific charts here that we can work through in a moment. But um, you know, obviously you've named named a couple of names, and they're obviously the the key proponents in the whole thing. And and you know, is there is there really there's no one left in neoclassical that could could present a you know an alternate view. Um, without going across to perhaps your side of, of you know of, of the of the rink, so to speak, um, you know, is it is it groupthink that's sort of done this, or is they just following a model that's 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 sort of set and you know that's what that's what we do and, and off we go. 
That's a very good question. There was one person who could have put an alternative perspective forward while still being part of the neoclassical world. His name was Weitzman. And shortly after uh, Nordhaus was awarded the Nobel Prize rather than him, Weitzman committed suicide. Wow. <laughs> okay. Now, I seriously think, oh, thank Christ, I finally got advanced repair options. It looks like Windows didn't load correctly. For those who don't know, I've been pulling my hair out for two hours this morning trying to get my PC to work after a Windows update, meaning I was just watching the, the black screen and the juggling balls for, um, um, for um, oh, God, one and a half hours. Anyway, so it might be getting closer in the background there. Pardon me getting distracted by my hardware issues. But, yeah, the, it, there is there is a... Uh, there's only there's, there's one other guy, Werner uh, 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 Gerno Wagner. I think he's one other moderately realistic neoclassical economist. But all of them use they they fit their models to about 25 data points about the impact upon GDP of a given temperature rise. Uh, and like one of those data points is that a one percent increase in global a one degree increase in global temperature will increase global GDP. By I think by two percent over what it would have been without that change. Now, that's Richard Toll, one of his data generated data points. But other ones, for example, say that a, a six degree increase in temperature will reduce GDP by about eight percent. Now, when you look at what scientists are saying six degrees would do, that that level of temperature increase is what occurred during uh, the, the major the, the preceding mass extinction on the planet where 95% of life forms have disappeared. So they, they have made a completely fictional set of data points and then they fit their models, which are equilibrium models. Most the, none of them use nonlinear dynamics at all. Um, uh, they, they use some stochastic elements, but they don't actually have nonlinearities and tipping points built into their models in any intelligent sense. What's the, um, what's the issue with that, Steve, yeah. they don't do that? Yeah, well, if you don't have tipping points, you, and this, this, this is the one that I find quite remarkable. Nordhaus's damage function is simply a quadratic. Y equals X squared. And Y is the change in GDP, and X is the deviation in temperature uh, from the pre-industrial level. And, of course, Y equals X squared, the only question is what's your coefficient? You know, is it Y equals two times X squared? So a, a, a two-degree increase in temperature will cause a, like a 4% fall in in, uh, in GDP. No, his factor is 0.000227, meaning that a one degree increase in temperature, he claims, will reduce GDP by 0.2%. Uh, a two degree will reduce it by about 1%. He has a, a six degree increase in temperature will reduce GDP by 8.5%. And you can even go in the opposite direction and say, well, what if temperature fell? What's his prediction? Oh, a four-degree fall in temperature will reduce GDP by 4%. Only one problem, we know what the planet was like when it was four degrees colder because that occurred during the last ice age. And everywhere north of New York was under a kilometre of ice. Now, if you want to believe that that's good, that, that if it happened would cause a 4% you know, a, a, a fall in GDP, get off the planet. That's stupid. But that's, that's exactly the same damage function they've applied for global warming. And that's why they're telling people that's no big deal. The reality is they're, they're simply saying if the weather changed and it got a bit warmer, warmer that would be the impact. But it, climate is not weather, and that is the simple mistake they've made. 
that morons like Donald Trump also make. That's why we are, you know, there's just, uh, we're, why we've drastically overshot what, what the planet can cope with in terms of our impact upon it. Very good. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, look, if you like, we might jump into a couple of the, of the charts that you've sent through. Um, and we've got one mm-hmm. here, USA temperature and GSP per capita deviation. Yeah, gross yeah, gro- gro- state product. Gross state gro- product. Yeah, product. sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yep, sure thing. Um, so um, are you happy to talk around uh, these these charts today? Yeah. Yeah, just to yeah, give yeah, the sure. background to yeah. our audience. Okay. Yeah, well, what that chart shows, if you do, if you do a plot where you say what's the average uh, temperature of the of America, which is about, I think it's about 12 degrees Celsius. Uh, and then what's the average uh, GDP per capita? What's per capita GDP? Then what you do is on the bottom axis, you show each state's deviation from the average temperature. And on the vertical, you show each state's deviation from the average GDP. Mm-hmm. What you get is a, a massive dots. So it looks like somebody with an extremely bad aim has gone <laughs> to a target range. And, and, and plow, you know, peppered shots all over the over the target. But if you if you if you sort of draw a parabola through that, an upside down parabola, you can you can sort of roughly track the pattern. So what it means is, very cold states have a lower GDP than the average. Very hot states have a lower GDP than the average. And that curve is a, is a is a sort of it, it gives you. It's not an entirely useless. Um, way of saying what may be causing income differences across American states. But then what they said is, well, that's that's what's going to happen with climate change. So if, if we have a 10 degrees increase in temperature, that's like going from New York to Florida. New York's GDP is uh, per head is, say, as a gross state product is, say, $50,000 per head. Uh, Florida's $40,000 per head. So a 10 degree increase in temperature will reduce uh, average GDP by 10,000, which is really bad. We should worry about that. No, 10 degree increase in temperature won't reduce GDP by you know 10,000 per head. It'll kill every living thing on the planet. Mm. Yeah. And, and this, is the, this is what they, they've mistaken temperature variation now with no change in the amount of energy retained from the sun with what's going to happen when we retain. And in, in that particular case, in that example, and Toll has used this in a tweet, 10 degree increase in the overall temperature of the planet. Now, to, that, that is being caused by the fact that we solar radiation bounces on the Earth and bounces right back out again. The, the, the majority of the energy gets reflected back into outer space. But if we capture uh, by adding additional carbon dioxide and therefore that causing other greenhouse gas changes as well, if we capture more of that energy, then we could raise the temperature of the, of the, uh, of the atmosphere by 10 degrees. Now, that's how it's going to be done. It's not by us adding that energy ourselves. It's retaining what the sun sends in. Uh, if we wanted to cause it ourselves, we would need to blow up uh, one Hiroshima-scale atom bomb for at every four square metres of the planet. <laughs> and that's not even factoring in the oceans, which are, which are 250 times the mass of the of the, um, of the uh uh, atmosphere, so you'd need 250 times as many nuclear bombs for that. Now, the equilibrium they're modelling, that they're working in equilibrium, they're saying when all the changes settle down. So to reach the point they're talking about a 10-degree increase in the temperature of the atmosphere, you'd also need a 10-degree increase in the temperature of the ocean, so there wasn't a, a, a change process between the two. So they are trivialising the idea of us dropping, you know, atom bombs at virtually every square, you know, it's not quite a square centimetre, but it's close, 
uh, on the planet as if that'll have no impact on us. It'll mm. destroy everything. Mm. And, and this is this is what's so tragic. Actually, Steve, can, can we take um, change tack for a little bit? So, so yeah. what I, was, I guess what we're trying to get back to is we're trying to get back to what is where where do we need to look for changes politically? I suppose in terms of the acceptance of of um, that these model that these models aren't right. So, so I guess I think we've you've sold us certainly on the on the idea that um, you know what's being done is is yeah, not wrong. the right thing. Yeah, and, mm. and but I guess what we're trying to look for is um, what you think, like where, where are the, uh, you know, where's, where's potentially a, a sign of a dawn? Like, is there, is there, are there places we should be? Is there any hope yeah, or, well, or, or actually who, letting the, um, corporates yeah. look after it? Who's the, who's the politician? This the New South Wales state politician who was trapped in the fires down, in, uh, um, south of New South of Sydney recently and has had an epiphany on climate change. I've forgotten his name. You guys might know it. Mm, yeah. Okay. Sorry, no, there's, an, there's a New South Wales state politician who went through an epiphany over it and said, look, he's going to dedicate his life to fighting climate change now. So what it took was uh, the fires, you know how bad the wildfires were last year, that swept through, I think it was Ulladulla he was in, and he was one of several hundred people trapped on the beach at Ulladulla as the fire raged down upon them who had to go into the water and get rescued by boats to avoid being burned to death. And mm. that experience, uh, and, and he, he just speaking to the fireys, the fireys had never seen anything like it. You might remember a particular fiery hopping out and giving an expletive laden uh, spray at, at, uh, at Morrison about what it was like. Uh, so what you're seeing is, is the, 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 one of the major impacts of climate change is going to be drastic changes in rainfall patterns. And the, the best book I can recommend people read on what this all is about is a book by a guy called Mark Linas, L-Y-N-A-S, called Six Degrees, Our Final Warning. And what he does is it's a huge uh, bibliography, reading through all the science papers, not the economics, obviously, about what the planet was like at one, two, three, four, five, and six degrees above current levels in prehistory. And then what that can imply for what it would be if we hit those today. And he said at about two degree increase in temperature, Australia will be a desert. Mm. It's already dry, as you guys obviously know. It's the second driest continent on the planet. But with the with the two degree increase in temperature, the change in the rainfall patterns, the change in the circulation patterns, looking back at past history, when we had the same level of temperature increase, meant that Australia was was completely dry. It was like Sahara. Mm. So uh, that that's that's a minor example of what we face. Now, to get to being the Sahara from what it is right now, of course, what it means is you've got trees and vegetation, which has grown up to survive much, much more moist conditions. So fires sweep through. If we had um, cacti uh, where, the, where the forests were, you wouldn't have had a forest fire. What you have is forests which are designed for, you know, rainfalls of a metre per year that are suddenly getting... 500 uh, millimeter, millilitres per year and a higher temperature as well. So when, when a lightning strike occurs, they burn to the ground. And then, of course, in that situation, you might get the cacti moving in and, and then the next time it comes through, it won't burn, but it won't, be, it won't support agriculture either. So these are the dangers we face. And I think the only way we're going to see change is if politicians themselves, as that New South Wales state politician was, are viscerally affected by that process. So and when you see cities burning Sorry. down, then you change. 
Mm. A- uh, Andrew Constance is his name. Andrew Constance. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Andrew Constance. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I feel like sometimes in Australia, as a person who believes in climate change, it can be a little bit depressing. Um, but a few months a ago, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of understating it, aren't I? Um, you are. So, um, but I was given some hope a few months ago when I was listening into a webinar about um, what they're doing in the in Europe. Um, I think it's called the Taxon taxonomy for sustainable um, activities or investing. Mm-hmm. It's basically standardization, uh, standardization around how companies report um, how sustainable their activities are because obviously um, ethical investing is a very popular concept at the moment and so there's this thing that we have around greenwashing where you make an investment or something look greener than it is. So I thought mm-hmm. You know, it really showed the, that there are places in the world, um, Europe and China actually comes to mind as well, as being um, political regimes that are looking to, um, to change, to, to, to actually implement policies that maybe um, say that they don't believe this research from these economists that we've been talking about today. So I feel mm-hmm. like there's hope that sense politically, but I also think that um, a question to yourself and Damien is, I think there's also hope from the corporate sector. Um, and so uh, I don't have as much experience um, with international companies, but one locally that comes to mind is AGL. Um, and yeah. you know, they've been... Um, um, you know, been on a lot of political fire over the decisions they've made, which it seems to me like they've actually been economically rational decisions for their shareholders um, to pivot their strategy into more renewables. Um, mm. And to me, that sort of is a bit of hope there. Are there examples you've seen um, in overseas companies oh, yeah. like that? I mean, Steve, Damien? Yeah, like for example, I mean, the, 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 the fact that we've such dramatic improvements in solar technology and batteries in the last... 10 years in particular, uh, then it means we are able to start producing energy without producing carbon dioxide. So that particular aspect of our excessive pressure on the planet may be addressed. But the question is, how fast is the transition? So in the last IEA report, the amount of energy produced by renewable means, I think, was 18.7% of total global energy. Um, if, how, if to get to 100%, what would we need to be building for the next... Uh, decade, we'd need to be building four nuclear power stations a day or four hydroelectric stations a day of about 1,000 megawatts. Uh, Now, all solar of the same scale, 1,000 megawatts a day. Now, we are not at anything like that scale in any of those technologies. So my expectation is that when the seriousness of this finally hits home and things like the wildfires in California following the wildfires in Australia, uh, the wildfires in, in Spain as well. Uh, two or three years of repeat on that process and it'll sink at people, holy shit, this is serious. Uh, so in that situation, you're going to be forced to say, well, we've got to cut carbon-based energy now. And then if you do it, how much of the actual energy use of the planet can you still sustain? It'd be of the order of 20%. Now, that implies an enormous fall in GDP, enormous fall in output. Uh, so we have the two choices. We can continue making the climate worse uh, or we can do something like uh, cut back you know, the production uh, to just essentials and reduce the energy load. And I've seen some papers recently saying that's actually feasible to still have a, a, a sort of a 1960s level of uh, decent income for the entire planet uh, with, with, uh, with 1960 levels of energy consumption. Um, 
but you know, with a lot of that being uh, solar and it's also more fairly distributed. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to reach that. I think what's more likely to happen, we're going to have somebody getting involved in rogue geoengineering uh, to try to adopt the planet because the, the, the critical thing that mainstream economists left out of their thinking in any serious way are tipping points. And, and that's mm. levels of temperature increase, which cause qualitative change in major Earth systems. Mm. And the most obvious one is the Arctic. And this is probably worth me, I know I'm doing a lot of talking here, but it's probably worth me spelling this out because there was a group of scientists led by a guy called Timothy Lenton, who's a scientist at I think the University of Essex in the UK, uh, did a highly intelligent expert survey where they pulled together experts on major elements of the Earth's climate and asked them to say, which ones do you think are likely to trigger changes in others? And, and, and what's the level of temperature do you think is required to trigger that? And the basic conclusion they reached was the most sensitive uh, and dangerous element of climate is Arctic winter sea ice, because that acts like a reflector mm. on, on the planet, reflecting solar energy out. If that replaced by melting the Arctic's winter sea ice, then we have the ocean, where rather than being white, it becomes literally black, absorbs much more heat, and then will trigger other changes uh, through the, including potentially the melting of the, the Greenland ice sheet. So they, they mentioned that they listed them in terms of how, how long it would take, to, the time span we're talking about, it was decades for the Arctic, uh, centuries for Greenland and, and Antarctica. Um, and then how much temperature was required, and it was between 0 0.5 and 2 degrees Celsius for Arctic winter sea ice. And, um, and I've, th th those, are, those are the two main factors they had. Well, Nordhaus used that to justify using a smooth quadratic for climate change. As he summarised it, saying the survey found there were no critical elements of the, of the climate which, which would go into a tipping point in less than 300 years and with less than a three degree Celsius increase in temperature. Now, I, this is in his book called The uh, Climate, uh, Climate Casino, chapter five of that book. And I thought, where, where the hell did he find this? I went and checked it. He made it up. He added an extra column called critical and put one star versus the maximum of three against Antarctica. That was not in Lenton's paper. I wrote to Lenton. He said that's a, he didn't say it's a fabrication in so many words. But he said, no, that's totally wrong. Uh, we did not say it wasn't critical. In fact, we said the Arctic was the most dangerous. Mm. So that's the sort of work. It is literally misrepresentation. A child would call it lying. Absolutely. Yeah. Can, I, can I give a... Uh, Coming back to your question um, about the companies, uh, Shelley, I think from mm. my perspective, the companies I'm seeing, um, I, I know very, very few that don't take it seriously and, and haven't basically mm. flipped around to, to actually, you know, full steam ahead on, on assuming this is going ahead regardless of whatever politicians are doing. I think there's, um, I, I was speaking to Steve a little bit uh, prior to this um, about it, but it's, I've got this fear in, in a way, I've got some charts I'll, I'll pop up in a minute to show um, sort of you know, my take on, on what you're seeing in terms of pricing. But I almost have this fear that some of the technological changes that are happening, if you look and, and extrapolate forward, um, it's almost an excuse for politicians to do nothing, which um, I'm scared is, yeah. you know, because, you know, I look at, let's say the US um, for, for, for oil is one of their big, one of the big things. So, so every year they burn about uh, 22 quadrillion BTU of, of oil for, for motor vehicles to, to make the cars go around. But the thing is, car car bat car engines are really um, are really inefficient, and you, you waste heaps of energy. So, in terms of actual mechanical energy, 
it actually only produces about you only actually need about four quadrillion BTU to 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 put the cars around. And so if you're using electric cars, um, mm-hmm. you know, you do you do lose some, but but um, you probably only need about you probably need about seven. So you need about so in terms of absolute energy, you need about a third of the energy to run the world on on battery powered cars is what you do on on fuel on um, uh, gas powered cars, and some of that's because yeah. of the the engine, and some of the some of it's because of the size of the engine that it's much more efficient with a to have a, have big things producing electricity than small things, and so. So I sort of see some some element of optimism there, um, and then yeah. that one. Actually, I maybe I should... Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Kip. No, I agree with you on that front. Yeah. Yeah, and so maybe uh, Tim, do you want to just flash up some of those charts, and I might just run quickly through the um, uh, yep, some of the charts sure I've got there on uh, on on the numbers for energy costs. So so I've got these these two charts up um, side by side. The the energy costs for uh, this is for solar. And I guess because I've got mm-hmm. this, uh, I have this theory that uh, solar plus battery is sort of the the ultimate um, uh, category killer in, in electricity. So yes, there's a good argument that solar, uh, you know, it's intermittent, um, and the problems come about when um, you know the sun doesn't shine, or you get, you have a week worth of cloudy days, and, and, and all these other things. But the issue is that um, that's been that's been an issue while solar was so was so expensive and you can see on that left hand graph it was just basically it didn't matter what the solar price did whether it, whether it went down by you know 50 percent per annum um it was still so far above the, the price of other energy that didn't matter but I've, on the graph on the right i've actually zoomed in on this last 10 years and you can see there are a range of different technologies that i've got i'm um, just showing you that the cost of them and you can see that utility solar which is those big um uh, fields full of solar panels you, you see that's now basically the cheapest and it and does depend upon where you are and then there's you know that that varies by by location and things like that but it's and, and all these ones do but you know it's effectively the cheapest out there the issue you've got as well is this blue line at the top right and this is our killer category which is the utility of, of solar plus battery with a full amount of shifting so I, I sort of treat there's two two amounts of shifting one is a little bit of shifting to get you through the uh, through the evening peak and the other one is enough shifting enough battery power that will actually get you through um, you know a full day or, or, or more so that you can you can be a bit more secure about the, the the energy supply and so you can see that that's coming down quite dramatically and if you, if you extrapolate forward um, oh sorry I've got, I've got another chart up just sort of showing the the next one showing um, you know, the battery storage costs are coming down so 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 you've got two two things falling quite dramatically battery storage and solar and the issue at the moment is battery storage is the most important because Solar costs um, on this uh, Bloomberg charter are at um, where are we about about thirty nine um, dollars per per megawatt. Is that whereas the battery PV, storage the yellow line photovoltaic the yellow that... line yeah Thanks. yeah photovoltaic yeah photovoltaic um, and so if you get a ten percent fall say in battery cost you're actually saving fifteen dollars because it's one hundred fifty whereas if you get a fifteen percent fall in in the um, in the solar cost, it's it's only more like six dollars. So so what really matters now is is not how fast solar keeps going down, although that although that will help, but it's more about how fast this battery storage going goes down. And and the benefits with battery storage is you've got car makers trying to get it cheaper. You've got FOMO, mobile phone makers trying to get it cheaper and better. You've got uh, you know laptop makers trying to make it get it cheaper and, and better. You've got people who are doing doing batteries for houses. Um, you know there's there's a lot of the world's 
um, brains all sort of targeted at this one area of trying to get that down. So, and, and a lot of the gains we're seeing is just the fact that um, it, it's it's more of a manufacturing thing about going, okay, if, if you have to make 10,000 batteries, you've got a certain cost. But now if you have to make 100,000 batteries, you get to drive your costs down a, a lot further. So you know, we're in this cycle where it's, it's hard to see where that's going to finish. Um, the next chart up I've got is just some of these high level, um, the, this are numbers you see, you saw up above, but what I've done is I've split it between, um, because the, the, the fossil fuel ones, what really matters is uh, the fuel cost, because once you've done, once you've built your wind or your solar, you don't have that fuel cost. And so um, breaking that out is quite important. Um, and, and, and I might skip though to the, the next chart, which is showing you, well, if, if things keep on growing, falling at 20% per annum, which is what they've been doing for the last 10 years. So in five years time at that stage, utility solar plus some sort of partial battery to sort of get you through the, the, the evening peak will actually be cheaper than the, just the fuel cost of, of coal or natural gas fired plants. So there's a, you know, not to say we're gonna, you know, there's, there's, there's reason why it might taper off, um, but I guess what even on these ones, if you taper down to sort of 10% per annum falls, um, you know, now you, you know, you're stretching out to 10 years, but you are getting to the stage where it's just not, it's, it's more economic to go and build a new um, uh, solar panel and attach a battery to it than what it is just to pump your existing fuel into your um, into your existing natural fire power plant or your coal. And I guess that's where I see the the the, the benefit is is if we can get that down faster. And um, the switch is going to happen organically. Um, people are just going to start switching off their, their things and turning on the new ones. But if if this if there's delays or, or things change um, and this slows down, then that's where your, your danger is. Um, Damien, do you have a view on how fast it's going to happen? Look, I, th I think between the five and ten year range is, is quite reasonable. Um, I think there's I think I think it's going to slow a little bit from where it is at the moment. Like we really have seen some really dramatic falls in 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 price um, it, without any government intervention. I think it's going to it's going to the, the pace is going to slow a little bit because I think we're we're starting to get down to some harder engineering problems. But I don't think it's going to be uh, I don't think it's going to be significantly different to where it is. And, and I think that could very easily be lifted if, if you do get a green new deal, say in the in the US. I could see that coming forward and, and being a something that drives it back to the twenty percent per annum, or or you know even just European um, focus on, on on pushing t t through that. Um, Steve, and then the final one. I, sorry, Darren, can I just ask if he agrees with you on that timing and if that's fast enough? Um, it's it's it is it'll be fast enough to give us some chance to respond to the, the tipping points we're triggering right now. Uh, what worries me is that we're seeing things like the uh, breakdown of the tundra, uh, which of course means that you then get uh, release of either carbon dioxide or methane, depending upon the microbes that get to eat the, the melting vegetation up there, which means that there'll be, the planet will start producing carbon dioxide or methane uh, at a far faster rate than we stop producing it. So. That is that is the main worry that I have, that um, we will um, start realising the, the, the dilemma we're in. Um, uh, but as as we go into reverse by you know, pumping up solar, pumping up storage, and so on, at the same time, it won't be us causing the carbon dioxide levels and methane levels to rise and retain more energy. It'll be the planet itself, and then it's a, we're going to. It's another yeah, area, that, isn't it? Pardon? 
It's a non-linearity. It's a non-linearity of it. Huge, thing. huge non-linearity. A phase yeah. change. I mean, I, I, I'll give you one of this. There's actually there's numerous papers I've read by mainstream economists which are so ignorant on climate change it's beyond a joke. But my favourite is actually by a very nice guy. He's quite a nice person. Not like Richard Toll, who's an asshole. A guy called uh, Kamiya Mahadas and a couple of colleagues. And they pointed out that one thing which is wrong in the mainstream thinking is they look at today's temperature and today's GDP and use that to say what's going to happen with climate change, ignoring the time dimension, which is exactly my criticism of them, and the, therefore the energy point. They said, well, we're going to use 40 years of climate data and see what's happened over time and then use that time uh, relationship to predict what's going to happen in the next 80 years. And in that, they said that if we have a uh, if we increase temperature by uh, one twenty-fifth of the degree per year for the next 80 years, which leads up to about a 3.3% three-degree increase in temperature, then that will cause a 7% fall in GDP. And I looked at, and you look at the projection they've got. They've got a, it's, it's a it's a range of projections. So it's a because there's a, a grade out on, on the chart in, that I re, that I uh, point to in my paper. It's a grade out area uh, on the chart. It's strictly linear. The top and the bottom are strictly linear. So they're telling you that, you know, this is going to be the impact of, of changing the temperature. Uh, you know, three degrees increase, seven degrees, I mean, between, between uh, for three and 10 degree average 7% fall in GDP. So that, that is a bit like having someone who is a, um, uh, analyzing how fast speed skaters uh, travel on ice and then telling you that you'll go, the speed, hang on. My girlfriend has woken up. Pardon me. Just a quick the line. Speed, I'm jump in. Uh, Damien, can we jump no. into that last yeah. one? Can, yeah. that, can I do the last one first? Just on the um, yeah. the residential. Oh, yeah, um, sure. So just want I just want to highlight that on that residential one is that there's a um, the, I had on that on the top graph residential prices versus these other prices, um, and I, and I. But, but they really don't matter. Like, it doesn't really matter whether um, residential solar produces energy at cheaper than, than what natural gas does or, or, or coal-fired plant, power plants because it, it's not competing with it. What residential solars um, or rooftop solar is, is competing with is the price of, to, to produce the energy plus the price to get the energy to somebody's house. And so when you, when you flip it back around that way and look at it um, – then you get then you get to see that and I've put these on the I haven't put the the current levels but I'll put the the, the ten and the twenty percent change levels, and that at that basis what it means is you can see that I've got the average levels of um, retail electricity and you can see that sort of over the next uh, five to ten years we're going to see uh, those hit parity or, or below in terms of retail energy so that's sort of going to put further pressure then on back onto um, Onto those producers of, of uh, fossil fuels to bring their costs down even further, to because if they don't bring their costs down, then people will start leaving the uh, leaving the grid. So, so that's an yeah. interesting point. This idea of people leaving the grid and whether grid investments are long term ones at this point in time, or actually they they might get phased out. Yeah. Well, I think, um, and, and we'll see if we can get when we get Steve back. Um, but the, I'm, I'm back again. I'm back again. Back? Okay. Sorry. Because I mean, yeah. I'm a, I I find com quite compelling the idea that um, there's sort of localized energy in terms of it being, you know, shared batteries between you know, a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand houses makes a lot of sense from a from an economic point of view. Um, uh, politically, I suspect it will, and so it means you sort of 
you know, some houses are using more, some are using less, and but but you don't. It's not like everyone needs to have this massive amount of storage to 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 store as as much energy as they might need in a reasonable period of time. Because across a larger set of people, um, you can get away with lower costs. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm quite a technological optimist on that side. But the flip side with with what Steve was talking about before is it's the unforeseen circumstances, which is why you want your politicians trying to help here. I think there's. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to get to is I don't think you need to tell people, hey, everyone needs to go back to living like we were in the 1960s. I think there's some technological um, hope. But the flip side is, you know, the fires we had in Australia last year, it wasn't like we had slowly, gradually worse fires every year. And then all of a sudden there was one year that was sort of got a lot worse. It sort of went boom in one year and, and showed how quickly these things can happen and how badly they can go when they do. And, and so, you know... I, I've got a lot to hope on 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 the technological side, but I'm scared about the the nonlinear stuff Steve's talking about, which we just don't know when it's going to tip. What is that tipping point? Mm. Yeah, well, that that's the real danger. We we I think we're already hitting tipping points now, and they're assuming there aren't tipping points. And my analogy where I got interrupted on beforehand was a bit like telling a speed skater you'll go faster if we increase the temperature of the ice from minus two degrees to plus two degrees Celsius. <laughs> uh, no, you won't. You'll drown. Uh, and, and that's yeah. the level of intelligence the economists have used. So when the tipping points hit, all their um, nice little you know, mild calculation will be thrown out the window. People will be saying, holy shit, um, why didn't you warn us about this stuff? Oh, we assumed it wouldn't happen. Hmm. Mm. And that's literally all they can say. A question for me just on those figures as well is um, I guess there's some external externalities in the sense that government can drive uh, so as in support or um, rebate, and we've got you know we've we've, we've got some good ones in place in in or, Australia as well. Have or, they been worked in figures or in, or inhibit? You're right, um, but I guess you know if it, yeah, depending on the the government of the day, um, you know whether or not you know you get a, a coal a coal rebate versus a a solar one. But um, that's been quite a prominent component of the uh, Aussie landscape in you know in particularly roof rooftop solar. There's a you know there's a huge number of rebates and bits and pieces out there. Have those been sort of uh, considered in in your figures, Damo? Or is that no, just a cherry no, no, on top? I, 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 uh, that's a cherry on top. Yeah, yeah. all all mine is is basically saying um, don't don't trust don't trust that there's taxes, don't trust that there's carbon taxes or, or credits or whatever there is. Let's just look at the raw economics because I think in the end though as well, um, you can use rebates and you can use subsidies to help get you there faster by mm. by scaling up by saying you know if we're, if we're only producing a thousand electric cars versus ten thousand or a million electric cars you know if we can get to that million faster then the cost per car will be actually a lot cheaper and more people will get on there and so you can help accelerate it but in the end if if the electric cars are going to be way more expensive than um than petrol cars the economics will eventually catch up with you you know you but but at least because all we're trying to do now i think if you're trying to go against the trend you could never do it. You know, you'd just be pouring money into a bucket and it'd just be, you'd never be get, getting there. But because we're just trying to accelerate a trend that's already there, I think that's doable. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that's true in terms of the economics of, of, the, of solar energy and renewables and so on. We are getting marvellous technological improvements there, which of course, many of which started in Australia and we lost the technology to China by not uh, not promoting a domestic. That's the work of Green and friends at uh, a Professor Green at uh, UNSW that gave us the first amorphous silicon uh, uh, photovoltaic cells mm. and the highest performance of the planet. We let it go to bloody China. Um, but nonetheless, the technology is improving at a rapid rate, and that means that we can feasibly imagine a, uh, a period, you know, a possibility of a zero carbon 
uh, generation from our energy production. Um, so it is that, that is a, a genuine positive. And of course, governments and politicians and economists have slowed us down in reacting to it. But thank God the technology, the engineers are still continued moving forward. Hmm. And it is worth saying as well, like there's been a lot around about um, yeah, gas being a transition energy. And to me, like when you look at some of those earlier graphs, yeah, gas was a transition energy um, yeah, 15 years ago, but the solar and everything's moved so much faster now and, and the costs have gone to come down so far. It's not a transition energy anymore. And so, you know, the, 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 the politicians are talking about gas. Now, now they're talking about gas being a, a, a transition energy. I talk, I've got their talking points from 15 years ago and they've, you know, we're, they're perpetually living behind the times. So, mm. uh, yeah, that... that's, a, that's a hilarious thing. They, they, the guys talk about not picking winners, but they pick coal. <laughs> they're good at picking losers. Isn't that what strong <laughs> lobby groups do? Paid, paid to pick losers. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, right. Mm. What we need to do is what we need to do is put our um, put the next batch of uh, of energy subsidies into subsidising lobby groups for for energy for green energy companies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we'll, then we'll solve. <laughs> That will solve all our problems. Sound, sound a bit meta. Um, just a quick question that's popped in uh, on the chat, and anybody else who's got some questions, feel free to, to drop them in. Um, Damien, does full battery mean or include pumped hydro or just Tesla-style lithium units in, in your calcs? Uh, look, the, the issue with pumped hydro is is you need some um, – pumped hydro is fantastic it's like, as, a, as a cheap um, source and all that sort of stuff, but you, just, you need to have um, – uh, places to store the, the water in convenient places near, near big cities mm -hmm. and so for that perspective I, I don't use the pumped hydro it, using pumped hydro um all my numbers are way better um yep. so but pumped hydro is just it's just very hard to do um in the right spot and so yeah i'm just using all and, and I've, i have used mainly lithium actually let me just think about my numbers the, the, the issue with the, the issue with the battery technologies as well is there are a lot of different technologies and um the battery technology that work best for a car Actually, pump out um, crack loads of energy really quickly, so the car, can, you know, so the car can accelerate it at, at uh, incredible rates. Whereas the the energy needed for a house is much lower and much steadier. So there's different battery technologies work better for, for different um, for different uses. And there's just so much going on in that space that um, I don't know which one's going to be the winner. Um, but there's there's it looks like lithium at the moment. But there are so many other different technologies that that um, you, you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't make any bets on on either solar or um, battery about saying you know this one technology is going to be the winner for all of them because um, there, there's just so much being done in that space that it's a bit yeah I think it's it's very hard to pick the winners um, but I think it's very easy to pick the losers in that the the coal companies and the oil and gas mm. companies are the ones that are, they're going to um, not do well out of this. Mm, okay yeah thanks Damien. Um, Another one here, question that's popped in. Um, it's probably just uh, really in reflection, I guess, and just to sort of give it some context, we are talking about um, ways that I guess the globe can reduce energy uh, or at least carbon intensive energy um, yeah, generation. Uh, but we've got one here uh, where increases in CO2 and energy are the problem. Which biological species causes the most and what is best at, at the fix? Is there economic? Is the economic solution to overpopulation and, and destruction of forests or is it too late? So stepping away from solar and, and back to um, the topics of overpopulation and, uh, and, and I guess, CO2 um, absorption. I haven't oh, seen a lot, no. Stephen. This is a great, I'm going to put a question. Mm. I'm going to ask a further question to this to you, Steve, because I, I haven't seen a lot in any of these reports about saying, you know, maybe we can go to, um, to try and reduce population growth you know, quite dramatically for a few years to try and help as well. I haven't seen much on that. So anyway, <laughs> I'll hand across well. to you. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean. Oh, sorry, I just lost you there, Steve. Hello, Steve. Uh, brown technology. That's for super, super, super sorry, sorry. Sorry, just just start again. Sorry, sorry Steve. I just lost you. Just dropped out for a okay. moment there. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah, we we have green. We don't have green technology. We have brown technology. We eat we eat oil because uh, and coal because what we're using is superphosphate, mm. uh, which is a technology that relies heavily upon fossil fuels invented in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds, and that's partly why the world's population is so high. Now, uh, so so that's that's one element, one aspect of it. We do have too high a population. However, if you look at who actually is the ones that generate the carbon, it's by far the rich part of the population. It's not the poor reproducing too quickly. It's the rich getting too much, and their their load on the planet. If we could reduce remove that, that'd be the most dramatic way to have effective population control. And my uh, proposal there is that I think we need to bring in carbon rationing. And that that's, I didn't talk about that in my articles. My articles is critiquing the, the neoclassical nonsense on climate change. But if carbon pricing can't work because you put the price for carbon for the poor, you get what the Gilets Jaunes did in France, riots, because people can't, they've got to make a choice between driving to work or feeding the kids. Mm. But if you had a, a universal carbon credit being given to everybody, uh, set at the average level for the entire country, uh, then 95% of the population or more uh, consumes less than that average amount. It's the 5% at the top who by far consume more carbon because they're the energy consumptions of your Allen Bonds and your Kerry Packers and, and so on, or you know, Jamie Packer these days, um, is far, far outweighs what the, what, the, what the poor do. So if we all got the same carbon ration and everything had two prices, a money price and a carbon price, uh, the poor would never, virtually never exhaust their carbon ration, but the rich would, which means they'd need to buy carbon credits off the poor. And that, I think, would be both a way of reducing their consumption, but also drastically motivating more, uh, you know, less carbon intensive, less energy intensive uh, production systems being developed as well. So I'd go for something like that rather than yeah, population control. That sounds like a very... Uh, uh, that, that sounds like something you could get part. You could get voted in, like you're saying. Would you? Would you like some free money? And get, exactly. Yeah, Kerry Packer will. Yeah. Kerry Packer will pay you because he wants to fly his jet back and forth. Sorry, James Packer will fly his jet back and forth a few times between Australia and the US, and so therefore, um, yeah, here's some extra money you get. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, yeah. the um, the conservative newspapers would just twist that so that you would get pe- you get a lot of people not voting for something that would be in their best interest. I, I think we're seeing, of course, they, they twist it, and that's what they're trying to do right now with, uh, you know, the lockdown in Melbourne. But despite all the screamings of Alan Bond, Alan, Alan, what's his name, um, Alan Jones, and, uh, and and Adam Crichton, and so on, uh, you've got uh, Dan Andrews being uh, extremely popular with the public. They're they're sticking with the lockdown despite uh, the 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 bleatings of the of News Limited. Um, so I think the days that the media having Having Australia population, at least by the balls, are over. The American population is another story. But, um, you know, yes, they'd fight against it. But uh, if, if, if the alternative is a carbon price, uh, then I know which, I think I know which way poor voters are going to go. Mm. Very good. Yeah. 
Okay, look, we'll uh, we'll just quickly, uh, just mindful of time, of course, just touch on investment implications as well. Um, maybe just, uh, kick off with you, Damien. We'll have a look at a couple of the, the, the greener stocks that have been in our portfolios. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight, I mean, I guess there's there's three ways to play this. Um, if you're looking for stocks throughout your portfolios, you've got the green energy stuff. And, and one of those we've, we've had for a long time is this Vestas Wind uh, Energy, one of the world's biggest turbine manufacturers. Um, we actually started to lighten up a little bit um, because it's getting expensive. And I think there's a there's a push right throughout that whole industry now as um, the odds of Donald Trump um, not getting in and the odds of uh, Joe Biden rises, uh, stocks in that, that whole sector have been rising quite quickly. So, um, you know, nice to have, but it's but it's but it's getting increasingly difficult to find companies in that that, that you can buy at a reasonable price. Um, there's some energy sort of conversion leaders. Like if you're looking through the uh, the um, electricity utility space, so uh, EDP, which is a Portuguese one, is is quite um, quite active in terms of switching. Uh, NG, which is a um, a French um, utility, is uh, to a lesser extent, um, you know, trying to transfer as well. Uh, I, I sort of I didn't put AGL up there, um, uh, Shelley, because it, although it was, I guess a it is certainly moving in the right direction. I think it's probably slowed its its move a little bit in, in recent years, um, uh, and 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 you very much see that in the price as well. Some of those energy, like uh, EDPs, again another stock which um, it's getting close to the level where we've got to start thinking about um, suddenly lighten up a bit on that one as well, just because it has uh, run up so so hard. Um, the service companies, I've actually, I've, I've, I was going to put a few down there, but I've censored that because that's where I'm trying to find things at the moment. <laughs> um, so I, I think, I think there are, I think there is scope within those service companies. Um, I've got a couple in in mind, but um, what do you mean getting by to the right. Company? Like just, just, just generally, you know. So yeah, companies are basically plugging things in and turning things on. So they don't have to be green companies, but they're they're involved in electrical engineering or or um, contracting projects um, and. Uh, the types of ones that will, uh, you know, will build the the, the the solar fact the solar farms and the types of ones that will. Um, so like Wally Carson is does that fall in that category? Yeah, those types of ones. Yep, and, and the issue uh, Wally's actually Wally's maybe not more your um your downers and and um, sure. okay. yeah. latent type ones. So come on, come on guys, so, I thought we were censoring these. Come on, you're giving the game away. No, no, <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the issue with those ones though is they've got they've got um it's quite a small division in those companies. Mm. So, but but it's those types of ones where you're saying, well, where I can get exposure to companies to to basically people who are selling the picks and 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 shovels to the miners. Um, you know, if you can find those type of companies at the right level, um, there is even some companies in the um, in the uh, semiconductor space, which I, I haven't put up there either, that um, produce some of the core parts that go into um, uh, solar panels and 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 th and things like that. So some of those ones. Um, Again, it's just it's a matter of finding them at the right price, and um, you know it's a mixture of and, and a lot of them. You know, it depends on how big that that part of the business is versus other parts of the business. But there's certainly room out there to, to go. And then we also I've put up some some links on there as well because we also let our um, our uh, investors can come in and actually choose which ones they don't want to have. Absolutely. So we have sort of a mix of the, the the worst offenders of fossil fuels. So that basically gets rid of your. Um, your brown coals and your uh, Canadian tar sands, the, the ones that really pollute really badly. And then you can sort of wind it back as to, to, to which level you want. And, and coming back to what's, you know, nuclear is a bit of a, a touch point, obviously in the ethical points on, on some phases, 
yeah, it's very good in terms of um, getting rid of carbon. But on, on the flip side, you know, people uh, are worried about its its, its other longer term impacts. And mm. so, you know, rather than making that decision for people, we, we let people decide for themselves whether they want nuclear in their portfolio or not. Very good. Okay, excellent. Um, and then you've just we've just got a, a page here on third quarter numbers as well. Yeah, this is actually flipping. So this is just if we're talking investment in, implications in general, right. I just wanted to, to note as well. This is changing tack completely uh, back to um, you know looking at the broader spectrum of of companies and and what earnings are doing at the moment. So companies are generally pretty expensive on this whole basis that um, there's a hope that. They'll, the earnings will, yes, they've fallen for a year or two and then they'll, sorry, for a few quarters, but then they'll bounce back quickly. And we're treating this third quarter as a very critical number in terms of being the first quarter of this year was um, was sort of either pre-COVID or, or right at the start of COVID. The second quarter was when most of the world was in lockdowns and everything was all, you know, up in the air and things were changing. Um, the third quarter sort of starting um, either June 1 or, 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 J- or July 1, um, from that we think that's sort of like that's pretty much our, our new normal until we get um, you know, vaccines and, and other things and, and who knows how long that's going to take. And so what we're treating, what we're really focused on is these third quarter numbers that are coming out at the moment. So on the, on the left here, I've got um, what's happening to, to forecasts um, versus a month ago. And, and they're basically, um, and I've got the different percentiles. So, that, so the middle one's the median stock. And then you can sort of see the, the, tenth, the, the worst 10, 10% of companies have fallen by um, 4% and um, the, the best 10% at the other end have, have, have risen by 6%. And what I'm focusing on at the moment, and, and it's very, very early days, so I don't want to be, I don't want to um, sort of overplay this, but um, there's two things is that um, when you look at the one on the right, that's looking at companies who have reported third quarter so far. And it's very focused. There's a fair few banks which have done really badly. There's a fair few um, uh, companies that are sort of retail focused. There's more consumer staples. So mm. so um, uh, shopping centers, sorry, not shopping centers, um, grocery stores and things like that. And then there's a fair few um, technology stocks, but the numbers are actually looking really, really good at the moment. So the growth column is showing that the median stock is has grown 12% third quarter this year versus third quarter last year. Um, they've, they've been earnings surprise versus a month ago is up 15%. So earnings, the third quarter came in at 15% higher than what people thought it was going to be a month ago. Um, earnings then got revised up by 4% for next year. And if you look at next year's numbers versus 2019 numbers, they, they're looking like they're going to be 2% above. Whereas for, for the, the broader set of companies, it's looking like it's going to be 6% below still. So lots of different room across everywhere. And this is a, a you know, US focused, but, um, uh, and I do think there's definitely some sample size issues at the moment, but um, yeah, we're pretty focused on watching this, um, these numbers at the moment, because we do think there's going to be, we do think this, this reporting season is extremely critical in terms of giving us a, a guide on what's going, going to happen going forward. Okay, very good. Thanks, mate. Um, and then we've got a couple more investment implications here, um, running through employment. We're... Yeah, so I might, I might just, I'll, I'll touch on this because we've obviously run a bit over time. Yeah. But, but basically, um, yeah, from a, from a you know, unemployment's our, our number one issue and, and insolvencies are the close second. So, um, you know, keeping a, a close eye on what's happening there because we think that um, governments and central banks have started off, you know, we're on a, 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 a marathon and they've sprinted from the start. And so we've had all this stimulus thrown at economies, which has sort of pushed us through and, and pushed markets higher. Um, 
the issue for us is that you're going to need another wave of that if you don't want to see um, things start to fade back. And we'll get, we are going to see unemployment um, you really start to, to kick in as, as all these initial benefits roll off in both in, in countries right around the world. Um, insolvencies basically are down like 30 odd percent globally, um, which is, you know, sounds incredible for a period in which um, it, we're, we're facing conditions, you know, last seen in the, in the Great Depression. Um, and the reason why is because governments have generally around the world um, put in measures so that companies can't go insolvent. And so for us, when that starts to roll off, and most of them have, they started with six months and the most, most countries have kicked it on another six months. Um, you know, we're, we're facing another six months of waiting before we start to see that. And um, we really think that's, that's brewing a, a major, major problem um, in that area and that, in that the insolvent companies are now gonna start bringing down non-insolvent companies. And so, um, yeah, they're our two big things we're watching um, on that front. Okay, very good. Um, and just quickly over to you, Steve, um, just a, as a bit of a finale. Uh, obviously, sitting in Melbourne, it's uh, the lived experience of, of COVID is still alive and well, but how are things looking in Thailand? Oh, this, this is the, why I laugh when I read all the correspond, all the um, comments about lockdowns in the rest of the world. This country had a successful, not just a lockdown, but a whole set of other ancillary policies as well, including mask wearing, social distancing, and so on. Uh, but the total number of cases in Thailand is just over 3,500. At least 1,000 of those have come in through quarantine. Uh, so in terms of domestically caused cases, maybe two, two and a half thousand cases in a country of 66 million. And uh, there, there have been three cases in the last four months uh, where there was a case in, in the, in the uh, community. Uh, two were quarantine breaches. One was a mystery case where somebody came down with a virus. Uh, it's actually a guy being sent to prison for drug offences and he was tested on the way into prison and found to have the virus. Uh, no other follow-through occurred, even though those cases were in the public because when they're in the public, they were wearing masks and so are people close to them, so no further transmission. So this has been completely successful and everything is back to normal in Thailand except, of course, for international tourism. Mm. And on that front, they, they may well do well because the main source of tourists these days is China, Apparently, the average Chinese person who came to bank to Thailand for holiday before COVID came three times a year. Wow. So the Chinese Chinese market alone could restore more than half their international tourism, and that should open up, I think, in the next six, two, two, two to six months. So life in Thailand is back to normal, and in in the sense that you, I go to the gym, I don't wear a mask at the gym. Uh, you can you can sit to people at a restaurant without being afraid they're going to infect you. So the tension that everybody's living with in the rest of the world doesn't exist here, and it's because of a well-managed public health program uh, centred around masks, social distancing, and most importantly, regional lockdowns. So there were 66 million provinces, 66 provinces in the country. I think there are, not obviously not evenly distributed population. But you couldn't go from one to the other without a permit signed by the governor of, wow. of that province. And consequently, where there was an outbreak, it didn't spread. Where it was, they did contract tracing. They found who had the disease, isolated those people, tracked the infections within their social group, and then isolated those. Strict quarantine, none of this nonsense about putting private contractors. The army runs the quarantine here. 
Uh, I know the army's got its own issues, but it's, uh, you tend to follow orders when you're an army officer. So you, <laughs> because somebody says, oh, please let me go out and kiss the guy in the next, uh, next building, uh, here's a few hundred. Uh, they, they take the few hundred and don't let you get out of the room. Um, so <laughs> it, it has been a very effective program and it shows what could have happened to the rest of the world had been as intelligent as Thailanders in this on that front, I recommend people take a look at a website called ncoronavirus.org, uh, which is maintained by the guy who was most responsible for breaking the Ebola output outbreak in Africa in 2014. He's a, he's a professional. He knows what he's talking about. He reckons a five-week process done effectively with everybody following the rules, which is the hard bit about Australia, of course, five weeks would be enough to break it anywhere on the planet. Well, I'll tell you what, that sounds like a, a pretty good idea for Melbourneites right now. We might have to get on to uh, mm. our, our friend, uh, as you know, as Chairman Dan, um, who's uh, flailing a little bit given the, 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 the lockdowns in Melbourne. Um, so, mm. yeah, well, thank, thanks for that insight. Yeah. Um, very good. Well, look, yeah, thanks very much for your time today, Steve. A, a terrific topic, uh, and, and we've been through uh, a fair chunk, uh, I think, of, of the gist of, of your paper. Do you mind if we share that paper in, in the notes? Or oh, is, is there somewhere? Yeah, yeah, absolutely share it. I mean, okay. I want to get out as widely as possible. The more when people realise the nonsense on which economists have based their conclusions about climate change being trivial, there's a greater chance to ignore their stupidity and actually respond to it as a serious threat that it is. Very good. Okay, so uh, for those listening in, head over to the show notes and we'll, we'll have a link there. Uh, and just, uh, I guess, to our, to our general uh, audience as well, just ways that they can follow your work uh, generally and, and, and support you, Steve. Yeah, that's my website and Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash brothstevekeen. I better add that, of course, that's that people give between $1 a month and the, the maximum uh, people are giving $1,000 a month. But you, most of my posts there, everything except podcasts basically is freely available. And that's on on the backing of my patrons. So you, you don't have to go to the you don't have to support me to read the website. You can read the website and read the post there. Um, that I, of course I'd like the support, but <laughs> the ideas are freely available. Fantastic. No, uh, yeah, I certainly offer out to our audience to uh, to check all of Steve's work out and uh, your weekly podcast uh, with with Phil Dobby is, uh, is always at the top of my list to listen to as well. Uh, thanks again for your time, mate. Uh, terrific to have you back on the show, and we look forward to getting you back on soon. Uh, so thanks again. Thank you. Hopefully with this hardware hassles next time. Well, fingers crossed. Uh, and also thanks to okay. Dam- thanks to Damien Classen and uh, Shelley George as well for, for your input and, uh, and, and uh, of course, yeah, the, the thoughts that you've had on, on today's topic as well, guys. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. All right. So we'll jump across to our question of the week. Viewer question of the week is, will reality force the economist's hand? Or do they have a trump card? So uh, feel free to drop in your answers uh, in, in the comments there. Steve liked that one. Fantastic. Um, and, uh, of course, we can have a read through those and, and obviously a bit of interaction as well. Uh, coming up next week, uh, we're continuing our run of Quality Australian Economists and we're joined by Dr Cameron Murray uh, to discuss the proposed increases to super, the superannuation guarantee. So Cameron, as you know or may know, is a friend of the show and he's an economist and consultant who specialises in property markets, environmental economics and corruption. Uh, the topic of increasing the employer level of contribution from 9.5% now to a target of 12 has been hotly contested. And uh, I, for one, are really looking forward to investigating its impacts with Cameron and, of course, our team here. So tune in next week, Thursday, 12.30pm on the 22nd of October for the live chat with us. And, uh, of course, head over to the Nucleus Investment Insights YouTube channel to ask questions along the way. So thanks again to all of those who have uh, 
tuned in live for another great episode. And of course, to those who have popped through some questions, we're getting quite a few comments and uh, people's thoughts, which is wonderful. Uh, I hope you've taken away some great ideas. And if you haven't already, uh, please hit like on the YouTube video to show your appreciation. Uh, if you'd like to see more of our content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content to stay up to date on news from us. Follow us on our social media channels. Uh, and finally, of course, if you know anyone who gets something out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. So thanks again for watching from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.